Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our channel will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our LSQ church family. We hope you'll subscribe as a way to stay connected during this season of uncertainty and social distancing. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 to 5, 14 to 17, and chapter 12, verses 1 to 7. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. When David sent messengers to get her, she came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Way, and good morning, and welcome to our live streaming service for our worship space. As you can see from the smile on my face, uh, I am very excited. We are very excited uh, to welcome those who can back to uh, church beginning next week, as, as Way just said. Our task force has analyzed the hospitalization rate, the infection rate, 
and we feel pretty confident about the protocols that we have in place so that we can worship safely together. So I know there is a, a different calculus for everybody, but I trust everyone to make the best decision uh, possible. So we're doing this because we've had more or less a, a year off from gathering in person. Those are habits that have been formed that we will need to break because if there's one thing that I think we've all learned during this pandemic, it's that we need each other. Uh, and we need each other active in, our, our, in each other's lives. We need each other in the flesh. And I think this is the very first step and a lot of steps in the right direction. So uh, to, fr- to frame our conversation for uh, today and our, our, from our text, let me ask you a couple s- a series of questions. Whom do you trust? What do you trust? I'll say that again. Whom do you trust? What do you trust? Because if you pick up a newspaper today, if you turn on the news, if you uh, just sort of look around, you will see how distrustful we are as a a country in regards to politics, uh, culture, and even this church. Uh, And not, not, not this church Uh, specifically, but the church as a whole. I think the data is showing that Americans uh, increasingly are distrustful and suspicious of every institution in our lives. It feels like there are scandals happening everywhere, which is why we're suspicious and distrustful of of everything and everyone. I think we're hearing right now of an ongoing uh, scandal and accusations happening directed to uh, some of our New York politicians. Uh, But just weeks before, news broke about a national Christian figure who was accused of sexual abuse and uh, assault and even rape of multiple employees. And so it seems like everywhere we look, our leaders, right, the people we're supposed to trust, and our institutions are soiled. And so what the public is doing is we're actually looking other places. We're, We're turning to uh, influencers and social media and other people to look for guidance. And yet, it won't work. In today's New York Times, there's an op-ed piece titled The Empty Religions of Instagram. And Lee Stein uh, writes there, this is what she says. She says, I've hardly prayed to God since I was a teenager, but the pandemic has cracked open inside of me a profound yearning for reverence humility, and awe. I want moral authority from somebody who's not just calling out her enemies on social media for clout. There is a chasm between the vast scope of our needs and what influencers can actually provide. Instead of helping us to engage with our most important questions, our screens are distracting us from them. In other words, I think, uh, to not put too fine a point on this, We can't trust our leaders, we can't trust our institutions, and we can't even trust the distraction of social media either. So there's this deep cynicism that's in everything. And so one of the consequences of that is this, is that we, more than ever before, we're having people trying to live as Christians on their own. What we might do is listen to a sermon online or do a little bit of reading on our own, but then we stay away from church, we stay away from anything organized, Because we have to cancel them. Now the problem with that is that sociologists, psychologists will tell you to have any kind of formation, you have to, a community is part of that. You can't fully grow unless you're connected to something or um, 
someone, uh, sorry, so, let's connect to something larger than yourself. And you can't be an effective witness even unless you're calling people towards something bigger than just sort of your individualistic and limited points of view. And so how, the question I want to start with before we dive into this text is how are we going to do these things if we don't even trust the institutions that we're supposed to uh, lean on to form us? I think that's a major problem for the church, but I think we can expand this if you, uh, depending on what you believe, this isn't just a problem for church, this is a major problem for every single modern institution right now. And yet I think our text helps us because it gives us and the anatomy of how things happen in the first place. And then once we see that, then we know what to do. So let's look at three things today. Let's look at what David didn't do. Let's look at what David did do. And then what David couldn't do. All right, so what, did David, what David didn't do, what David did do, and then what David couldn't do. So first, what David didn't do. And... Uh, unfortunately, I, I felt like for the sake of brevity, we, I didn't read the entire passage in 2 Samuel 11. It's gripping. Uh, it's heart-wrenching. It's the story of David and Bathsheba, and it's one of the more famous stories in the Bible. But if you want to know the key to how to read the whole um, text, it actually centered on one single verb uh, in Hebrew. It's the, it's the verb sent, to send. And it actually happens in our text uh, 11, 12 times. Let me, let me show you. Uh, in the verse 1, it says, David sent Joab out. And at first, nothing seems strange. And yet two verses later, in verse 3, it says, David then sent someone to find out about Bathsheba. Then he sent messengers to get her, in verse 4. Then he sent her home, it says. In verse 6, this is, this, I think this is sort of the climactic verse, he sent word to Joab to send Uriah, to, so Joab sent him. There's three sends in a row showing I, what I think the author's trying to get at is sort of a raw abuse of power by David, right? And when, by the time the passage is over, as I said, it, it, it uh, shows up 11 times. And I think it's referring to how David was abusing his power as a king. What should have been power to create and uphold, and to build. Instead, there's, these powers are used to lead to David descending further and further away. What should have been powers to bring flourishing, to build systems, to, to do good, it does evil. And, you can, almost, and you, can, you can see the steps. If you read it over and over again, you see the, almost like the verb send is like another step down. It starts with boyerism. Right? He's just sort of watching. And then it leads to lust. And then it leads to desire. And then it leads to adultery. And then it leads to lying. And then it leads to manipulation. And then it leads to murder. And so this is important to point out. Because sometimes people just say, oh, you know, David Bathsheba. No, this wasn't a one-time mess up. There was a system and a structure and a design to that structure that David cultivated to carry out and then hide his sin. And, and what we have to ask is, how did he get there? And this is, I think, perplexing to all our, wait, this doesn't just happen. How, how did this come about? And uh, probably the, the most illuminating commentary I read on David here is um, by a Jewish scholar named Robert Alter. 
And I think he gives us the background needed to kind of see David um, in the flesh, so to speak. We have to zoom out. Zoom out for a second and look over all of David's life. And we actually know a lot about his life. And we ha- it's really hard to do this because um, we know more about David than any other character in the Bible. We know more about David than even Jesus. In fact, a third of the Psalms was written by David. So we have more prayers, more stories, uh, more feelings, his feelings. And I think we can sum up his entire life, or at least the majority of his life, in um, both before he was a king and then after he was a king, in what I'll call two major long-term struggles that over time changed him. And so let's point these out. The first one, the first struggle is what I would call the struggle of his opponents or his enemies. If you read the Psalms, he's always constantly talking about his enemies. And what happens is David felt mistreated. David felt as if uh, people did not understand him, as if people read him through the worst lenses. They, they would take small truths of him and they would blow it up. They would bring out of proportions. They would charge him with all kinds of things that he didn't do. And um, I think what that means is, is I think David felt wronged a lot of his life. He felt he wasn't getting his way. He felt like he wasn't getting his fair share. So, for instance, Saul charged him with undermining his leadership, right? And, and, and before, that was even before David was king. But then when he was king, all his opponents were constantly trying to twist and turn and, and weaponize his, uh, his actions to get an advantage over him. And so now, um, I, as I was reading about this, I was like, okay, well, how many of these charges against David were false? And how many were actually true? And we, we actually probably won't ever know. But let's just say for the sake of argument, let's say it's both. Let's say some of the things that were charged on David was false. But let's actually say some of them were actually valid. Maybe he was never fully lying, but maybe he was... You know, maybe he wasn't technically lying, but maybe he was spinning or shading or highlighting some things and not highlighting other things. You know, uh, he was being a good politician. He was being a good king, kind of knowing the various factions in his, in his uh, kingdom and how to, you know, use them against each other. He probably felt justified to do these things because his opponents were out for blood. And uh, I mean, let me pause from just talking about David and... Um, Talk about what, it, what it's like to be a church leader. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll try to get real. As a church leader, you're constantly being told that you're not doing enough. Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? You're doing too much of this. You're doing too much of that. And over time, what happens is, yeah, you do start feeling kind of sorry for yourself. You know, the the self-pity creeps in, and the doubts creep in, and the paranoia creeps in. David felt like he was constantly misunderstood. People were out to get him, and I think that gave him a profound sense of self-pity that he deserved, that he didn't get enough of. And I bet you, for your own lives, I bet you you could find a similar stream somewhere in your life as well. Now, that's, that's one of his struggles. But there's a second struggle that he had. At the exact same time that he was being attacked, he was also being constantly praised. Well, how do I know that? He was king. 
He won battles. In fact, I think we actually, in a, um, a couple weeks ago, one of our passages was about people writing songs about him. When he defeated Goliath, right? Uh, it was, you know, David defeats thousands. And people are, are literally dancing in the streets. Nobody's ever danced in the streets about me. But for David, they did. And as they were singing his praises, you can almost kind of hear the, like, the crowd. You know, the crowd goes wild. <laughs> David! <laughs> you know, it uh, he was the most famous and the most important person in all the land because he took out the baddest, biggest, baddest enemy in Goliath. Uh, he, he won uh, victory after victory on the battlefield. And I th- actually think he was, the, he was a bigger celebrity than our celebrities today because in some ways he was the only celebrity. And guess what happens when you are praised that much? When you are praised that much, here's what happens. You start to believe it. You start to own it. You start to think, you know what? Yeah, yeah, I am pretty wonderful, aren't I? I did do these things. And that means any blessing, any good thing that comes your way, here's what happens. I deserve that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I own that because look what I did do. Look at all the things I have brought. Look what I have done for these people. Look how I have helped them. Here are my receipts. Here's what I've done well. And so now I need to get what's coming to me. And so what I would like us to do today is I want to take both those narratives and I want to slam them together in David. Because I think both those things are actually operating in him. They're running parallel in his life. Let's call it the self-pity narrative. That no one understands me. It's not, it, no one understands me. It's not fair. I suffer. I'm attacked. I don't get enough. With the self-praise narrative. I am awesome. I do deserve. I should get things my way. I've earned some of these things coming my way. And sure, maybe uh, to get them, uh, some people might understand, you know, or understand what, how I'm doing it. But that's because they, they're attacking me and they're, after me, and so I deserve this, right? So they actually interwork with each other. And unless I take, I might never get. Because you know what? Look at all the, th- look at all the things that are happening. Look at all this negative stuff. Look, I have to get what, 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 what's for me and mine. Put those two things together, and this is a lethal combo. I don't care who you are. Over time, if you let these things stew in your life, you have no chance. David was able to rationalize and then to execute and then to justify his actions. And I think this is pretty important because when you see major failings in our leaders today, or even leaders thousands of years ago as, as we're doing right now, these things didn't show up out of nowhere. They weren't, they, they weren't just one-off things. These things were nursed over years so that those doing them actually had no idea the dumpster fire of, their, uh, of life that they had become. David had no idea that he was a dumpster fire, and he never saw it. And, and, I, and I think that's actually the case for a lot of us. Um, there's a type of mar- uh, martial art uh, called uh, judo that is founded on a Japanese principle. The literal translation is like this softness over hardness. But um, it's basically using your opponent's force against them. So if you are a judo expert, you could be 100 pounds, and uh, you know, somebody attacking you could be 200 pounds, 
but you use the weight of that opponent against them as they lunge after you. And so you, you kind of learn to use their movement to their demise. Sin is judo used against you. And what I mean by that is whenever, whatever you're great at, it will be used against you. David was a leader with power, and then that great quality was used against him. David was passionate. We know this from his poetry, but that passion was used against him. Generally, whatever your greatest strength is, I I say this in a lot of counseling sessions, it's also your greatest weakness. So, for instance, if you're super independent, you're like, I I can stand on my own two feet. What happens is you tend not to rely on others, and that hurts them. But if you tend to not be independent, if you kind of need people, then, then what ends up happening is you tend not to be independent enough. You're someone who constantly relies on folks. So there, whatever you're good at, it, can, it ends up being the negative as well. Some of you are really, really hardworking. But as a war, hardworking person, you become a workaholic. And your weakness is that you don't know how to rest. Some of you love resting. Some of you ha- are really good at resting. But then it's getting motivated to do something. That's what's hard for you. David probably was one of those hardworking leaders. He overworked. The, the work, he worked so hard uh, he started getting uh, more praise because of that work. You stop praying, you stop worshiping, you stop relying on the Lord. You tend to burn out. You get the self-pity. No one understands me. I do get praise when I work enough, so I'm going to work more. Your identity starts coming from that, not from your relationship with God. God, and then, bam, it's over. And so, before we move on, what didn't David do? He didn't work against the narratives of his life that he developed in himself. He didn't watch over his heart. He didn't do the introspection needed to fight what would become the justifications and the stories that allowed him to do terrible things. And so before we move on, this is so important. This is why this point is longer than usual, which is is because this. Where are you ignoring your weaknesses through your strength? Where are you hiding behind your success? And under those successes are actually your failures and your hurts and the secret narratives that you have nursed to feel better about yourself. David's sin hid from him, and guess what? Your sin is hiding from you. And when we can't believe how our leaders fall, the reason why is because we don't even know the narratives that are in us right now doing the very same thing, working for our demise. We think we're okay, but we're, it's only because we don't see how we're not okay. So let's go on. What, if that's what David didn't do, if he didn't go against the narratives of his life, now quickly, then what did David do? At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash 
YouTube. Well, what he did do is he wrote a lot of the Bible, which of course then breaks our categories, particularly our, can- our cancel uh, um, culture that we live in. Because no one person is all good or all bad, right? David had a lot of bad, and then there was a lot of good that was in there. And you're like, well, okay, okay, fine. But I don't think I would have ever have done what David did. And sure, maybe you never would have. You might not have done it this way, but sin is sneaky. It's hiding from you, and yet it's inside. You don't know what you don't know, right? You don't see what you don't see. So I think some of us in this room, like David, have done things we really don't want other people to see because we know they're that bad. But I think other, others of us in this room are like David in that before being confronted, we don't even know what, we, what we're doing. We don't even know what we don't know. And so whether you're aware or, or, or unaware, know this. It's always easier to see sin in someone else than it is yourself. I think this is one of our biggest problems in society. We're so good at saying, look at that over there. That's the problem. Not realizing where we're causing the problem because we don't see our own issues. Because what's obvious to you is not always obvious to someone else. This is why the Bible is constantly saying, take the plank out of your own eye before you take the speck out of somebody else's. Not because you actually have the plank or they actually have the speck, but because you tend not to see what's in your eye. You only see what's in theirs. And so the Bible, yes, it speaks out about justice all the time, but it's wise enough to know that often our calls for justice focus on the misdeeds of those whom we see, failing to see the injustices of the misdeeds in me. And I, and folks, I'm not just saying this to you, I'm saying this about myself. I'm saying that I, 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 I'm so, it's so much easier to see out than to look in. We don't want to. We don't want to go in there. And this is why I think there's something very self-righteous to say all those institutions out there, they're all sinful, they're all fallen, I'm going to stay away from them. Churches are messed up. I'm not, I'm not debating that. When people say, I'm going to stay away from the church, what you're failing to see, well, well, institutions are fallen because they're made by people, and people are fallen. But guess what? You're people too. (laughs) That's what makes the church. Hebrews 3.13, I've been reflecting on this all week long. It says this, Exhort one another every day so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's stop on this for a second. Say that again to yourself, right? Exhort one another every day so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What is that about? Well, let's reverse it. If you're hardened, you will become cynical of others or the church or those Democrats over there or those Republicans over there or that race over there or that people group over there or that institution over there. Unless what? Which, by the way, I'm... Yes, I'm saying we are being hardened. We are hardened right now. That's the cynicism we talked about at the beginning. Unless what? Unless we exhort one another. Well, what does that mean? To exhort means to ask yourself, in what ways is my sin deceiving me right now? Turn the lens within. Now, how do you do that? Well, with only with others. Well, how do you do that? That's what the church is. The church is the place where we come together and exhort one another and ask ourselves those questions. It's fallen but beautiful. So if you're not a leader, 
and you see somebody, and it's easy to see sometimes the pride in leaders. It's usually because it's easier to see it in someone else than ourselves. The reason why you need the church is you need the relationships that are deep enough where you granted access to other folks to speak into your life about you. Which is a scary thing, which I don't know, maybe that's why we don't do that. Which is maybe, I don't know, why we stay on the thin level where it's easier just to kind of like high, high, high and not go into the depths. It's also more time consuming. And who has time? Time is money. It's also, you know, stickier and messier. And those people get it wrong often when they speak into your life. They will at some level, right? That's what David had. They, they probably understood part of David, not all of him. And we're so easy to latch on the part they're wrong and not the part that isn't. John Owen said, kill sin before it kills you. We need that. That's what we need from each other. We need each other to help root that out. God himself says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It's near and you can't see it. And so notice, how does God actually break through to David? Ironically, there's one last word, send. Remember how I said it was 11 or 12? It was 11 when it was about David, but there is a 12th verb to send, and it's in verse 1 of chapter 12. It's in our text. It says, the Lord sent Nathan. David kept sending, and it led to his demise. Finally, the Lord sends Nathan. It took another person to show David his sin. It always does. Friends, you're not going to walk down the street and go, aha, here's my issue. (laughs) Sorry. That's not how it works. The Lord sent Nathan. Nathan created, and, and, and not just that, and I, we don't have time for this. I'm so sorry. It's probably a whole other sermon. We, but Nathan created a context in seven verses so that David could see his sin. He uses a lamb, which David was a shepherd. He uses a context that he would have understood. I think so many of us, again, we don't have time for this, but we, so many of us, um, we don't think deeply enough about how to create context where other people can hear us confront them in love. A lot of us go like this. Well, I said it, you know, it's up to them if they want to take it or leave it. Come on. It takes two to tango. You can't just, this is the problem with social media. We say phrases outside of context, no body language, no background, and we just expect the other person is going to understand where we're coming from. That's crazy. You need to set it which is why you need to be in the flesh, which is why we're even starting services up again because it's so important for us to come together, to be convicted. We need to think more deeply about how we say something by presenting a situation, not just what we say. And only then was Nathan able to say, you are the man. And actually, it was only after David only realized it because of the context he was made. So last point, what... You know, what David didn't do, he didn't go against the narratives. What did David do? He was able to actually put himself in a place where Nathan was able to then confront him and come after him. So, but last point, what couldn't he do? Well, David, as a leader, what he couldn't do is he, leaders are supposed to sacrifice. Right? They're supposed to sacrifice themselves for the greater good of those whom they're leading. That's the definition of a leader. David did that many times, but he couldn't do it all the time. And there are, there are times when I, you know, we know that he was a good leader in some ways, right? He led his people. He did it, but he couldn't do it every time. 
In fact, in this case, he said, I'm not going to sacrifice my desires in this case. I'm not going to take one for the team. I want, I need, I'm king, she's beautiful, I'm doing this, it's done. That's what David did. But leaders are supposed to put the good of others before their own. And David couldn't do it. It was years of self-pity narratives. It was years of self-praise narratives. And so let me be clear. I'm not making an excuse for David. I'm showing you the anatomy of how you get there. And that same anatomy is in you. It's just hiding from you. Which is why you can walk around going, I'm not that bad. I'm okay. Da, 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 da. David had his own narratives. You have your own narratives. You have your justifications for what we think and how we think it, what we deserve and why we need it. And you might not even know it, but it's destroying you and it's destroying others. It's the real fodder behind the systemic and individual actions, not just of our country, but of, of the entire world. So you think you aren't hurting people with porn? Yeah, you are. You, don't th- you think you're not hurting people by fudging on those spreadsheets? You are. You think you're not hurting people by being unintentional in relationships? That marriage, that sibling uh, life? Of course you are. You think your actions are justified, of course, right? You think, well, well I need to. I have to. I mean, I, I, this is just my one little area. Just I'm protecting it. No. What hope do we have? The penalty for adultery and murder, by the way, back then in the Torah that David signed up for that he knew was death. There was no recourse. There was no get out of jail free. It was death. And so when he finally in chapter 12 admits and says, I, I, I was wrong, it was an expensive confession because the consequence was death. He must have known it. And this wasn't in our text, but a couple of verses down further, unlooked for, undeserved, It says this, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Which is crazy. Absolutely crazy. Now, there were other consequences, and we can't get in time. We don't have time for that, but we see them later in David's life. But he didn't get what he deserved. Who took that? Who absorbed that guilt? And it says, go back to that phrase. It it says, the Lord, the Lord has taken away your sin. I almost kind of want to, you kind of need to say it over and over again. The Lord has taken away your sin. What? How? Our text doesn't tell us, but we know centuries later there was a leader who always put the people's good over his own. Who always sacrificed for the good of those whom he was leading. So much so that he died for them. Jesus is the true leader. He never gave in. He never said, I don't get what I deserve. He never said, I have to have. In fact, the one time, the one time he said, Lord, if this cup could pass from me, what did he say? He said, if it's your will, not mine. And then it didn't. So he took the guilt of David from the past. And guess what? On that cross, he took the guilt from you and me in the, from, that was in the future. On that cross, Jesus is the true David. He's the true king. He doesn't abuse his power. So all of us are not just forgiven, but cleansed. Friends, put away those, nor- na- those secret narratives, those stories, those, those uh, phrases that we tell ourselves that we're nursing to get by in life. Why? Because we have the true story. We have the David who's true. I think David had a hard time hearing this in his parts of his life, and I think we do too. Here it is, that you're loved. I know Americans, we love saying that phrase. We have movies and stories and pictures 
but we don't actually believe it, that you are loved. And the greatest example of that in the universe, that God of the universe loves you, is in the person of Jesus. <clears throat> when I look at a mountain, I love going hiking. I love being in creation. When I, when I see a mountain, I see it's pretty, and I know God loves pretty things. But when I look at the cross and the resurrection, I see God loves, and I know God loves us. And if you really knew that, <coughs> you would be fearless. You'd be able to go out into the world and care about things in reckless abandon. You'd be able to go into institutions that are falling apart that you don't fully agree with and love and serve through them. But there'd also be a fearlessness to go into your dark places, into your life, and to confess, knowing all that we have to do is to confess. <coughs> Confession uses truth to bring light to darkness, and we do that through his love. Because when you do, when you use his love, it becomes our love. So please, friends, don't stay away from the church. Join it. It's messed up. It's a messed up group of people. Allow God's love in Jesus to move us out into love and service. You can't be formed without it. You can't grow without it. But fall in love with his love. And if you do that, you would love what he loves. And who, he, who does he love? The world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, looking at David's life, I mean, so often we, we look at what he's good at. We don't look deeply enough at what he's not. And Father, what we see there is long patterns, deep patterns. And these patterns are in us too. Father, I don't know what allowed David to confess to, um, to have the courage to say, even though I face death, I will confess. I pray we will have the same courage. But we, Father, have more resources. We have the infinite love of the God of, of the universe and the person of Jesus. If we confess, Father, that's how you bring darkness to light. We pray that we will do that, Father, knowing the security and love that we have in you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. And we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.